Chapter 4 of The Heart of the Ancient Wood by Charles G. D. Roberts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Sandra near Montreal. Miranda and the Furtive Folk From the very first day of her new life at the clearing, Miranda had found it to her taste. Her mother loved it for its peace, for its healing but to the elvish child it had an incomparably deeper and more positive appeal. For her the place was not solitary. Her wide eyes saw what Kirsty could not see, and to her the forest edges which she was not allowed to pass were full of most satisfying playmates just waiting for her to invite their confidence. Meanwhile she had the two steers and the black and white cow to talk to. Her mother noticed that when she sat down in the grass by the head of one of the animals— and began her low, mysterious communication, it would stop its feeding and hearken, motionless. The black and red brindle, Star, would sometimes follow her about like a dog, as if spelled by the child's solemn eyes. Then the solemn eyes on a sudden would dance with light, her lips would break into a peal of whimsical mirth, shrill but not loud, and the steer with a flick of his tail and an offended snort would turn again to his pasturing. In a hole in one of the logs, just under the eaves of the cabin, there was a family of red squirrels, the four youngsters about three-fourths grown and almost ready to shift for themselves. No sooner had the old lumberman and his son gone away than the squirrels began to make themselves much at home. They saw in Kirsty a huge and harmless creature whose presence in the cabin was useful to scare away their enemies. But in Miranda they found a sort of puzzling kinship, the two old squirrels would twitch up and down on the edge of the roof, chattering shrilly to her, flirting their airy tails and stretching down their heads to scan her, searchingly with their keen protruding eyes, while Miranda, just below, would dance excitedly up and down in response, nodding her head, jerking her elbows and chattering back at them in a quick, shrill voice. It was a very different voice to the soft murmurs in which she talked to the cattle, but to the squirrels it appeared satisfactory. Before she'd been a week at the clearing, the whole squirrel family seemed to regard her as one of themselves, snatching bread from her tiny brown fingers and running up her skirt to her shoulder whensoever the freak possessed them. Kirsty they ignored. The harmless, necessary Kirsty, mother to Miranda. No sooner were they fairly settled than the child discovered an incongruity in her gay pink calico frocks, and got her mother to bury them out of sight in the deal chest behind the door. She was at ease now, only in the dull blue-gray homespun which made her feel at one with her quiet surroundings. Nevertheless, the vein of contradiction which streaked her baby heart with bright inconsistencies bade her demand always a bit of scarlet ribbon about her neck. This whim, Kirsty humored with a smile, recognizing in it a perpetuation of the scarlet kerchief about her own black hair. As for Miranda's hair, it was black like her mother's when seen in shadow, but in the sunshine it showed certain tawny lights, a pledge of her fatherhood to all who had known Frank Craig. So the autumn slipped by, and the silent folk of the wood watching her curiously and unwinkingly as she played while her mother built fences— came to know Miranda as a creature in some way not quite alien to themselves. They knew that she often saw them when her mother's eyes could not. Perceiving that her mother did not quite understand her at times when she tried to point out pretty animals among the trees, 
The child grew a little sensitive and reticent on the subject, and the furtive folk who had at first inclined to resent her inescapable vision presently realized her reserves and were appeased. Her grey little sprite of a figure might have darted in among the trees, turned to a statue, and become suddenly as invisible as any lynx or cat or hare or pine marten amongst them, except indeed for that disquieting flame of scarlet at her neck. This was a puzzle to all the folk of the wood, continually reminding them that this quiet flitting creature did not really belong to the wood at all, but to the great woman with the red about her head, whose axe made so vexing a clamour amid the trees. As for Kroof the bear, that bit of scarlet so interested her, that one day, being curious, she came much nearer than she intended. Miranda saw her, of course, and gazed with wide-eyed longing for the great big dog as a playmate. Just then Kirsty saw her too, very close at hand, and very huge. For the first time, Kirsty Cragg felt something like fear, not for herself, but for the child. Thrusting Miranda roughly behind her, she clutched her axe and stood motionless, erect and formidable, awaiting attack. Her great black eyes blazed ominously upon the intruder. But Kroof, well filled with late berries and sweet wild roots and honeycomb, was in most amiable humour and just shambled off lazily when she saw herself detected, whereupon Kirsty, with a short laugh of relief, threw down her axe and snatched the child to her breast. Miranda, however, was weeping salt tears of disappointment. "'I want it, mother,' she sobbed. "'A nice big dog. You scared it away.' Kirsty had heard more than enough about the dog. "'Hark now, Miranda,' she said severely, giving her shoulder a slight shake to enforce attention. "'You just remember what I say. That ain't a dog. That's a bear. A bear, I say, and don't you ever go near it or it'll eat you up. Mind you now, Miranda, or I'll just whip you well.' Kirsty was a little fluttered and thrown off her poise at the idea of Miranda encountering the great animal alone, and perhaps attempting to bring it home to play with, so she forgot for a moment the wanted stringency of her logic. As for Miranda, she consented to obey and held her tongue, but she clung secretly to her own opinion on the subject of the big dog. She knew very well that the fascinating animal did not want to eat her, and her mother's order seemed to her just one of those bits of maternal perversity which nobody can ever hope to understand. The incident, however, overshadowed the child's buoyant spirits for the best part of two whole days. It thrust so very far off the time she hoped for when she might know and talk to the shy, furtive folk of the wood with their strange, unwinking eyes. Her mother kept her now ever close to her skirts, she had no one to talk to about the things her mother did not understand, except the steers and the black and white cow and the rather irrepressible squirrels. The winter, which presently fell white and soundless and sparkling about the lonely cabin, was to Miranda full of events. Before the snow, Kirsty had repaired the old lean-to, turning it into a fowl house, and now they had six prim hens to occupy it, and a splendid flame-red cock who crowed most loftily. Miranda felt that this proud bird despised her, so she did not get on very well with him, but the hens were amiable, if uninteresting, 
and it was a perennial joy to search out their eggs in the loft or the corners of the stalls. Then there were the paths to be kept clear after every snowfall, the path to the spring, the path to the barn door and henhouse, the path to the woodpile. Uncle Dave had made her a hand sled, and she had the exhilarating duty of hauling in the wood from the pile as fast as her mother could split it. It was a spirited race, this, in which her mother somehow always managed to keep just about one stick ahead. And the fishing. This was a great event, coming about once a week if the weather suited. Both Kirsty and Miranda were semi-vegetarians. Frank Craig had been a decrier of flesh-meat, one who would have chosen to live on fruits and roots and grains and eggs had not his body cried out against the theory of his brain. But he had so far infected his wife with his prejudice that neither she nor the child now touched meat in any form. The aversion, artificial on Kirsty's part, was instinctive on Miranda's. But as for fish, fish seemed to them both quite another matter. Even Miranda of the sympathies and the perceptions had no sense of fellowship for these cold-blooded, clammy, unpleasant things. She had a fierce little delight in catching them. She had a contented joy in eating them when fried to a savoury brown in butter and yellow cornmeal. For Miranda was very close to nature, and nature laughs at consistency. The fishing in which Miranda so delighted took place in winter at the lake. When the weather seemed quite settled, Kirsty would set out on her strong snowshoes with Miranda on her fairy facsimiles of them, striding bravely beside her and follow the long white trail down to the lake. Even to Miranda's discerning eyes the trail was lonely now, for most of the forest folk were either asleep or abroad, or fearful lest their tinted coats should reveal them against the snowy surface. Once in a while she detected the hare squatting under a spruce bush, looking like a figure of snow in his winter coat, and once or twice too she saw the weasel, white now, with but a black tip to his tail as a warning to all who had cause to dread his cruelty. Miranda knew nothing about him, but she did not quite like the weasel, which was just as well, seeing that the weasel hated Miranda and all the world besides. As for the lynx and the brown cat, they kept warily aloof in their winter shyness. The wood mice were asleep, warm, furry balls buried in their dry nests far from sight. And Kroof, too, was dreaming away the frozen months in a hollow under a pine root, with five or six feet of snow drifted over her door to keep her sleep unjarred. Arrived at the lake, Kirsty would cut two holes through the ice with her nimble axe, bait two hooks with bits of fat pork, and put a line into Miranda's little mittened hands. The trout in the lake were numerous and hungry, and somehow Miranda's hook had ever the more deadly fascination for them, and Miranda's catch would outnumber Kirsty's by often three to one. Though her whole small being seemed absorbed in the fierce game, Miranda was all the time vividly aware of the white immensity enfolding her. The lifeless white level of the lake, the encircling shores, all white, the higher fringe of trees, black beneath, but deeply garmented with white, the steep mountainside at the foot of the lake, all white, and over-brooding, glimmering, opalescent, fathomless, the flat, white arch of sky. Across the whiteness of the mountainside one day, Miranda saw a dark beast moving, a beast that looked to her like a great cat, 
She saw it halt, gazing down at them, and even at that distance she could see it stretch wide its formidable jaws. A second more, and she heard the cry which came from those formidable jaws, a high, harsh, screeching wail, which amused her so that she forgot to land a fish. But her mother seemed troubled at the sound. She gazed very steadily for some seconds at the far-off shape and then said, Panthers, Miranda, I don't mind bears, but with panthers we've got to keep our eyes open. I reckon we'll get home before sundown today, and mind you keep right close by me every step. All this solicitude seemed to Miranda a lamentable mistake. She had no doubt in her own mind that the panther would be nice to play with. As I've said, the winter was for Miranda full of events. Twice as she was carrying out the morning dish of hot potatoes and meal to the hens, she saw Tentine, the bull caribou, cross the clearing with measured stately tread, his curious patchy antlers held high, his muzzle stretched straight ahead of him, his demure cows at his heels. This was before the snow lay deep in the forest. Later on in the winter she would look out with eager interest every morning to see what visitors had been about the cabin during the night. Sometimes there was a fox track, very dainty, cleanly indented and regular, showing that the animal who made it knew where he was going and had something definite in view. Hare tracks there were sure to be. She soon came to recognize those three toed triplicate clusters of impressions, stamped deeply upon the snow by the long elastic jump. Whenever there was a weasel track, narrow, finely pointed, treacherously innocent, it was sure to be closely parallel to that of a leaping hare, and Miranda soon apprehended by that instinct of hers that the companionship was not like to be well for the hare. Once to her horror she found that a hair track ended suddenly right under the cabin window in a blood-stained patch bestrewn with fur and bones. All about it the snow was swept as if by wings, and two strange footprints told the story. They were long, these two footprints, forked with deep hooks for toes and an obscure sort of brush mark behind them. This was where the owl had sat up on the snow for a few minutes after dining, to ponder on the merits of the general order of things and of a good meal in particular. Miranda's imagination painted a picture of the big bird sitting there in the moonlight beside the bloody bones, his round horned head turning slowly from one side to the other, his hooked beak snapping now and again in reminiscence, his sharp eyes wide open and flaming. There was also the track of a fox, which had come up from the direction of the barn, investigated the scene of action, and gone off at a sharp, decisive angle toward the woods. Miranda had no clue to tell her how stealthily that fox had come, or how nearly he had succeeded in catching an owl for his breakfast, but from that morning she bore a grudge against owls, and never could hear without a flash of wrath their hollow, to woo woo echoing solemnly from the heart of the pine wood. But the owl was not the only bird that Miranda knew that winter. Well along in January, when the haws were all gone, and most of the withered rowan berries had been eaten, and famine threatened much of the bird folk as had not journeyed south, there came to the cabin brisk foraging flocks of the ivory-billed snowbird. 
for these Miranda had crumbs ready always, and as word of her bounty went abroad in the forest, her feathered pensioners increased. Even a hungry crow would come now and then, glossy and sidling, watchful and audacious to share the hospitality of this kind Miranda of the crumbs. She liked the crows and would hear no ill of them from her mother, but most of all she liked those big rosy-headed trustful children, the pine grosbeaks, who would almost let her take them in her hands. Whenever their wandering flocks came down to her she held winter carnival for them. During those days when it was not fine enough to go out, when the snow drove in great swirls and phantom armies across the open, and a dull roar came from the straining forest, and the fowls went to roost at midday, and the cattle munched contentedly in their stanchions, glad to be shut in. Then the cabin seemed very pleasant to Miranda. On such days the drifts were sometimes piled halfway up the windows. On such days the dry logs on the hearth blazed more brightly than their wont, and the flames sang more merrily up the chimney. On such days the piles of hot buckwheat cakes, drenched in butter and brown molasses, tasted more richly toothsome than at any time else, and on such days she learned to knit. This was very interesting. At first she knit gay black and red garters for her mother, and then, speedily mastering this rudimentary process, she was fairly launched on a stocking with four needles. The stocking, of course, was for her mother, who would not find fault if it were knitted too tightly here and too loosely there. As for Kirsty herself, her nimble needles would click all day, turning out socks and mittens of wonderful thickness to supply the steady market of the lumber camps. One night, after just such a cosy shut-in day, Miranda was awakened by a scratching sound on the roof. Throughout the cold weather, Miranda slept with her mother in the main room, in a broad new bunk which had been substituted for the narrow one, wherein old Dave had slept on his first visit to the clearing. Miranda caught her mother's arm and shook it gently, but Kirsty was already awake, lying with wide eyes, listening. "'What's that, mother? Trying to get in?' asked the child in a whisper. "'Hush! Shh! Shh!' replied Kirsty laying her fingers on the child's mouth. The scratching came louder now as the light snow was swept clear and the inquisitive claws reached the bark. Then it stopped. After a second or two of silence, there was a loud blowing sound as if the visitor were clearing his nostrils from the snow and cold. This was followed by two or three long, penetrating sniffs, so curiously hungry in their suggestion that even Miranda's dauntless little heart beat very fast. As for Kirsty, she was decidedly nervous. Springing out of bed, she ran to the hearth, raked the coals from the ashes, fanned them, heaped on birch bark and dry wood, and in a moment had a great blaze roaring up the chimney throat. The glow from the windows streamed far out across the snow. To the visitor it proved disconcerting. There was one more sharp rattle of claws upon the roof than a fluffy thump below the eaves. The snow had stopped falling hours before, and when, at daylight, Kirsty opened the door, there was the deep hollow where the panther had jumped down, and there was the floundering trail where he had fled. This incident made Miranda amend, in some degree, her first opinion of panthers. End of chapter 4